Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whitlaw. Now, my guest this week is somebody that we would describe as a friend of the channel, although I'm sure that he would not consider himself a friend of any media outlet. Um, Peter Hitchens, uh, author and columnist, uh, is with me this week. Uh, welcome, Peter. Um, his latest book is A Revolution Betrayed, How Egalitarians Wrecked the British education system. The, you can see the cover of it here. It's out this coming Thursday, the 24th of November. Um, and you can buy it on Amazon. And Peter, I imagine in bookshops, is that right? Well, if you're very lucky, you might find it in a bookshop. Right. Bookshops generally don't stop my books. Uh, very few might. Uh, sometimes they'll order them, if you, if you ask, cumbersome procedure. I've never in my life seen my books displayed in a bookshop. So I... It, although I love bookshops, they don't love me back. And right. I think you'll find in general, Amazon has been a, a great help to me and other authors like me who don't fit in with the zeitgeist and aren't approved of by the by people who work in bookshops are generally like most people in the culture industry, people of the left, and they don't particularly want to help me. If people imagine that bookshops are neutral places just as they imagine that research is neutral. It's not true. Mm. No, I, you only have to go into Waterstones or wherever now and you see best 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 reads and it's virtually all kind of critical race theory or well yes and that's of course what gets published too and mm. publishing is not uh, how shall i say not wholly unbiased yes well it is available on amazon definitely certainly should be yeah. yes um before we talk about the book peter i i did want to ask you something because it's 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 something we have talked about before and you've talked many times about and that's the state or otherwise of the tory party in relation to our border culture. Uh, the reason I mention this is there's an article by Ed West that's gone up uh, today, just before we're recording this. And um, it's called, it's on subsect, what should small conservatives believe? And it goes on to say, Peter Hitchens was right all along, the Tory party needs to die. He says there comes a stage in a man's life when he puts aside childish beliefs and comes to realize that Peter Hitchens was right all along. Um, I'm sure that that doesn't give you any particular satisfaction, Peter. But um, well, the stage tends to be, or appears to be roughly a, a few weeks before they reach their deathbeds. I, it's a very, very long process that mm. people seem to have to go through before they reach the stage of recognizing that I'm right. I have been arguing this for nearly 20 years mm. now. And it's been, I remember in the years just before the 2010 election when David Cameron had become leader of the Conservative Party, I thought it was the most urgent thing in my life mm. that I should persuade people that whatever they did at the 2010 election, they should not endorse mm. David Cameron's Blairite takeover of the Labour Party and its conversion into, into, into a Blairite formation, which is what I, I believed then and believe now was going on. I th and also I thought there was no, no, no disadvantage for the British people if they didn't have a Cameron government, even if they continued to have a Brown government, it wouldn't have been any worse. But the, you, it was one, an extraordinary stage in our politics where you couldn't sack the government. You get, whatever, you get the same government however you voted in 2010, but you could sack the opposition. Mm. If you did so, then it wouldn't magically necessarily follow that you would get a new political party, but it would create the opportunity for it. In our first-past-the-post system, which I have to say I very strongly support, the one of the parties at least has to be badly wounded before another party can arise. And that was what I was hoping for out of the 2010 election. I could not get anybody to support me. I went around other colonists 
I, I won't name any names, begging people who I thought might see the point to support me in this because I was a lone voice. I remember Intelligence Squared ran a debate uh, very kindly and generously in, in, which, uh, in which I was going to put this case. And Michael Gove, to his credit, was prepared to speak against me. And uh, what actually happened was that m my partner on my side of the debate pulled out at the last minute. I won't say who it was because I, I he's no longer with us, but I, I regard it as one of the most disgraceful things anyone's ever done to me. Uh, and I was left with someone having to do, do partner me who was just doing it as a professional debater yeah. because we had to have it. I could not get any support for a position which I now find week by week more and more people come to see was right. And I also remember a meeting of the Bruges group at the, at the Tory party conference, I think of, of autumn 2009 in, in Manchester, where I spoke on the same theme and the, the temperature of the room dropped uh, while I was speaking because nobody wanted to hear what I had to say at the time. And there was a huge, ridiculous belief that David Cameron, despite the obvious fact that he, he, he was in fact a metropolitan liberal public relations man, that he was actually going to be a conservative prime minister and they would not be shaken from it. Tribal loyalty trumped thought. And, and so there we are. So uh, whenever anybody says, well, it, it's wonderful to see that your people now realize that you're right, I say, well, it isn't actually. It's far too late. Uh, there was an opportunity, a real opportunity in 2010. I think there was still enough intellectual and political muscle in the country to create a genuinely sensible conservative formation to replace the, the ruins of the Tory party. But I think that time has gone now, and I very much fear that if the Tory party now collapses, as it well may, it will be replaced by something pretty ropey. Uh, be because of the lack of intellectual Yeah, this isn't any. There hasn't, no one's been thinking about it. The, the level of our education has been declining. The, the people, the actual people available in our society to sustain it have been going into retirement or dying. I don't think there is the intellectual force and mind left in the country to create the sort of formation which could do the job properly, which would be, which would be as concerned about, about liberty and justice and law as it was about, about uh, patriotism mm. and about the, the welfare of the people. Uh, huge issues on which a, a proper Conservative Party needs to be right to, to both to succeed and to do its duty. You know you said that there was a, a, a dip in the temperature when you talked about it back then. Yeah. Um, you recently spoke, was it the Oxford Union, sorry, or it was the one of the Roger Scruton It was lectures. one of the Roger Scruton lectures, yeah. And uh, you did talk about it then, didn't you? Oh, I did, yes, but well, in a sort of elegiac way, I guess, yes. very much as a, as, a, as a cause which had been lost to the, to the detriment of the country. and. And but our, I, and our culture. I noticed w w with that I watched the interview afterwards as well with Daniel. Oh Hammond. yes, and it was pitiful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm afraid Daniel Hammond revealed himself. I, I've, it, it was like being interviewed by Owen Jones. Yes, only yeah. less entertaining. Yes, uh, it's extraordinary. And it, it, you, people think of, 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 of people such as Daniel Hammond, who doubtless is a perfectly nice person and, and kind to animals, but they think of him as some sort of conservative. He's plainly. Not remotely conservative mm. on, on, on any actual important issue, but a, a, a liberal of some kind, as mm. so many people are now trading under the conservative banner are. He didn't, mm. he hadn't had a, he didn't, actually, I, he had, it's worth watching the thing mm. to watch the Hannon interview officers to see how somebody can sit through an event of that kind and not have a clue about what's just been said. Mm. Yes. He seemed, uh, he seemed just sort of irritated. That was. The, yeah, he was, yes. But I've, I've had the same questioning about the, the, when the questioning began, I realized that he was basically taking the view that the, what I had been saying for the past 20 odd years uh, is, that, is, is that the country was materially worse off 
And my whole point has been that we're morally worse off. And if you're morally worse off, actually, in the end, you will be materially worse off as well, as we are now discovering our, our, our moral failures are, I think, one of the main reasons for, for our rapid impoverishment. Yes. But it, it, it wasn't, it's never been a question about, uh, about child mortality rates or, uh, or things of that kind which you raised. It's always been a question about moral poverty. That, that, and he simply hadn't grasped that. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. I bumped into him on the train on the way up and offered him a copy of the lecture, and he, 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 he turned down the offer. So really? really? I think uh, I, I, I would uh, completely uh, agree with you there. Um, I think uh, there is this sort of, as you say, this, this, this emphasis on the material. It's like when I read every year, it's a similar kind of uh, editorial they do in The Spectator about how everyone is so much better off. And um, you sort of think, well, in that case, why is why are people so unhappy? <laughs> well, uh, happiness is a very is, 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 is a very hard thing to pursue, as the Americans have found. But yes, but then again, if you say that, that child mortality has fallen, which it, it has done for for many reasons, uh, and, and could equally well, in my view, have fallen under mm. a properly conservative form of government. Uh, what you must also mention then is the huge rise in the number of children who are aborted in the womb. Mm. Uh, if you're worried about child mortality, then that presumably must concern you. And it, it, is, it is a point at which moral, uh, moral poverty uh, crosses with, um, with material progress. Mm. 200,000? I think it's something like that now. Yeah, we, are, we haven't reached the stage that the Soviet Union reached, where the, the number of abortions outnumbered live births, but it's, it's pretty bad. And also, the figures are now disguised by the fact that mm. the use of the morning after pill is, is preventing many pregnancies from reaching the point at which they could, can be aborted in the first place. But it is undoubtedly, it's the same thing. Mm. It's, the, it's the destruction of, of, of human life in the womb for the convenience of, uh, of adults. Just before we go on to... But we don't want to discuss that. Just, be, just before we go on to... Another, it's another interview. Another, uh, before we go on to the book, um, I just want to pick up something that you, you said uh, that you were a great supporter of the first past the post. Yes. So, because, you know, when we have these endless discussions about what happens next, as you tend to do in these yep. waters around here, uh, People say, oh, the only chance is for some form of proportional representation. It's a bizarre thing to say. Every proportional representation system I've ever seen produces an arrangement whereby there are a number of small parties which coalesce after the election, mm. in, often in ways they haven't warned anybody of beforehand, and that those parties are dominated by, uh, by parties of the, of the, the liberal left, or mm. the, the Christian Democrat region, which is pretty much indistinguishable from the liberal left. You might get a so-called right-wing party taking part in one of these coalitions and getting a few ministerial posts in it, but it won't run it. Now, the whole thing about uh, first-past-the-post is it, it, it forms coalitions before elections. Mm. And it's perfectly possible for, uh, for intelligent conservatism to, to, to produce a coalition. And I'm still amazed that in this country there has never been a go-list party, which is that's to say strongly social democratic on, on welfare and uh, public services and strongly patriotic abroad. Uh, and, and, and generally culturally conservative in, and morally conservative in its nature. I believe such a party, if it existed, would sweep the board. But in a, a proportional representation system, it, it, it wouldn't because its elements would be divided up. Mm. And that's what they all... The, the, it can take... Sometimes I think more than a year in Belgium it's taken them to form coalitions mm. out, out, of their, out, out of their multi-parties. I don't know... The only thing that would appeal to it for a... For a uh, 
supposedly right-wing party would be that such a party would, of course, get state aid and would be able to build offices and employ people, and also its leaders, because of closed list systems, would be guaranteed permanent political careers. But that's a concern for them. It's not a concern for the country. Mm. You would never get... I think only once in Germany since the war has there been a majority. Uh, I think Adenauer got an actual parliamentary majority in the Bundestag. Uh, every other German government has been a coalition of one kind or another. You would never get the, 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 the ability to throw out an unpopular government, mm. which to me is vital for political stability. Uh, and you would never get a chance in between elections for strong government either. It would always be a, a salad. And it, it's just it's amazing how, how so many people on the right seem to have, seem to have fallen mm. for PR. It's going to make it very difficult for them to resist when Keir Starmer I th mm. does what I think he will do if he wins or becomes the, the largest single party at the next election, which is to go for it. Mm. Well, uh, actually, yes. Yeah, so basically, what would happen if we if we have first past the post? We don't have any PR and all of that. Uh, essentially, the Tory party you say it's too late. Come the next election, what are we going to have? What do you see? Well, if the Tory party collapsed, then it, you would obviously have a period between its collapse and the creation of something else. And mm. that's another reason why it should have happened a long time ago. Mm. You can't immediately uh, create it. But as I say, I would have striven very hard for the creation of a British girlish party of the mm. sort I just described. Mm. And I think that there is, you look at pe people like. Uh, the, the existing Social Democratic Party. It's very appealing in many ways to, and, and, and has a lot of those elements to it. At the moment, it's a train set rather than a railway uh, because it's so small and, yeah. has, and has no money and, and, and very, little, very little broadcasting access. But if, it, if the Conservative Party were gone and there was a space, a party of that kind might well fill it. Mm. Yes, I mean, it, it is, uh, I've spoken at the conference quite recently, and... Um, yeah, lots of people have, I'd say, they, yeah. they, they say some intelligent things, and, it's, it's, and they've understood an important fact. It is not necessary for Conservatives to, uh, to, to be unpleasant to poor people. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, uh, Conservatism appeals to, uh, to, to, to many people on the, on, on the old-fashioned mm. left. The, the old pre, uh, really pre-Wilson Labour Party was an extremely socially conservative party. Yes, yes. Oh, actually, yes, uh, my own parents are a perfect example of that, you know, Labour voters yeah. who are, you know. Um, with the book, A Revolution Betrayed, uh, Peter, um, I, I want to start, uh, it basically takes in about a century, doesn't it? I mean, the past century. Yeah, it's, it's, it, tries to, it tries to set into context the whole thing, mm. which is both, is, is, is a bigger event than people realise. Mm. And, a, and a more startling one. Uh, so I, I go back a bit to the you know, to the origins of the grammar schools themselves uh, before they became free uh, for that brief and wonderful period between 1944 and 1965 when we actually had really good state secondary mm. education available to a lot of people who couldn't otherwise have afforded it. But they, they had an existence before that. Uh, mm. Which uh, which seems to be worth. I mean, it's 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 amusing to note that the original founding statutes of Eton College describe it as a grammar school, mm. and the divide between the, the grammar schools and the so-called public schools, the big fee charging schools, is not an educational one. It's a it's a basically a divide of snobbery. The the decision of uh, of those schools, the uh, the Clarendon schools, to become boarding schools uh, rather than day schools, um, made them basically stop schools, mm. uh, where the whereas the grammar schools remained uh, actually 
pretty classless, which was a good thing. In my view. Yes, I mean, it, it, it's very near to my heart, actually, because it, it, when I was reading the chronology that you set out in the book, and also the arguments, um, my own f sort of family's uh, experience came in and out of it, shredded in and out in my mind. Um, just one thing, um, I went to a grammar school called Roan, Roan School for Boys. Uh, there was a, a, a girls' school, similarly, Roan School for Girls, just down the road in Greenwich. Uh, old, 300 years old, uh, site, what you call public school pretensions, if you want, you know. Uh, in 1977, uh, it was going to go comprehensive. And essentially, there was a public meeting. Parents were very angry about it on the whole. But they were being told why this happened. Could you explain? I'm just using that as one sort of moment in time. What was happening there? Well, by 1977, it was pretty much all up, and there were a few local authorities which, uh, which resisted. It, the, the government did not take powers, probably could not lawfully have taken powers in 1965 to force uh, grammar schools in this country to close because education is very much a local authority concern. What they could do was put considerable political and ultimately economic pressure on local authorities to stop having grammar schools, and that began with Circular 1065. The equivalent in Scotland was much more dictatorial. They should be instructed, mm. and uh, within I think a couple of years there were no grammar schools left in Scotland. But it was, but it wasn't a, an absolute decree that they should immediately be shut down. Mm. And so, but the the process began and accelerated. I have to say, in in 1970, when the Tories came back into office under Margaret Thatcher, because so many local authorities were fitting in with it, it's quite surprising that your school was still uh, was still a grammar school in 77. Most of them had gone by then, I think. Uh, well, yes, this one, this one was gone. What, what, what I think within within the year I left in seventy seven. But point was, it was Shirley Williamson who was the education uh, secretary. Um, but I wondered um, if you'd explain how how long had grammar schools, in that sense, in the sense of my school, been in existence until that. Well, point? well many of them go back as you know, to the to the age of Shakespeare. Others, a, a lot of. Um, 16th and 17th century foundations. They were basically, they were local, they were fee charging mm. as secondary schools in most cases, which took increasing numbers of, of scholarship boys and girls. Uh, in some of the labor local authorities, in the particularly Durham in the interwar period, uh, they were largely working class schools. Mm. So they, they, they selected on merit, there were an awful, awful lot of scholarships. But in 1944, they became free to everybody. You didn't have to get a scholarship to get it to them, but people, you, you just need to pass the 11 plus. And so they became, as Evelyn Moore described, a system of giving free education to the poor. At the same time, of course, there was the, this, this was the moment at which this country, for the first time in its history, uh, began to offer, this is England, Scotland and Wales have different histories, uh, began to offer secondary education to everybody. Mm. Until then, until the 44 Act, secondary education had been a minority activity and a lot of people simply hadn't had it. They'd had an extended uh, primary education up to 14 and then had left school. So mm. the, the secondary modern schools which came into existence at the same time were a completely new thing. And they were, they, they were utterly experimental. And that's a, another large part of the book, the misunderstanding of the nature of the secondary moderns and often the, the, the slandering of them in later years is much worse schools than they in fact were. But the, the, what happened was basically that something which had been partly at least fee charging became entirely free, but entry was controlled 
on merit. Mm. And a huge effort was made. And there's a lot of derision at the 11 plus these days in the way in which it was drawn up. And much of it is justified because the, the research on which some of it was based was, was plainly wrong. But it was a sincere effort mm. to avoid class prejudice. There was a real effort to not to allow class prejudice to keep people out of the grammar schools. And in 1953-54, I think 65% of the pupils at grammar schools came from working class homes. Now, you, you, if you looked at the, the current high quality comprehensive so-called in this country, you'd struggle to find one which had anything remotely resembling that number of children from working class homes in it. Uh, it's quite an achievement. Mm-hmm. It began just, uh, there are lots of other things that are, there are huge things which people don't even remember now. The great baby bulge, as we call it in this country. The Americans call it the baby boom. That term's taken over now. Uh, in 1956, this hits all secondary schools in the country because because they they started at 11, and the pressure on places became much much greater. And as a result, competition to get into grammar schools became much greater, and more people failed the 11 plus and didn't get into them, which began to make the 11 plus unpopular and was the beginning of their political doom. Uh, it was it, it, suddenly the, the the zealots and utopians who'd been campaigning for years against grammar schools, uh, suddenly they were in step with a large chunk of middle class public opinion. And that's what basically finished them off. But oh, something you, you, you go into in, in the book so, uh, uh, is, is, you know, extraordinary, really, is that people who had it in for grammar schools for whatever reason, um, didn't seem to muster the same kind of hostility to private schools. It's very strange, isn't it, that if you were looking at, at, at privilege and education in this country, then uh, obviously fee-charging schools where you can get an enormously better education mm. if you're rich than if you're poor would be a, a, a major target for reform. Uh, the, in, a, in a free country, you can't close schools down. If you try to, they're simply set up abroad. But what you could have done, for instance, is you, you could have compelled the, the big fee-charging boarding schools to take large numbers of, of, of as it were, scholarship children. Mm. In fact, there were many very high-quality day schools which did this, the direct grant schools, including fantastically good schools such as Manchester Grammar School, who took large numbers of, uh, of, 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 of working-class children from ordinary state primary schools as well as, fee, as, 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 as fee-paying uh, parents. And it was very successful. Uh, one of the most successful things in the British education system. And there's no reason why that couldn't have been applied to the public schools, but it wasn't. It is quite odd that all the venom and, and, and rage and destructiveness uh, was visited on schools which were actually open to the working class. Well, actually, it was venomous. Somebody famous, you know, Anthony Crossland, who was foreign, uh, shadow foreign secretary, I think, at the time. Um, oh, well, he, or no, he would have been educa- obviously education secretary. Yeah, he, he, he took over as education secretary mm. because uh, because he um, the, the 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 original education secretary Michael Stewart was moved to the Foreign Office. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's if you remember this, Patrick Gordon Walker was defeated at Smethwick in that famous by-election. Yeah. Who had been going to be Foreign Secretary? This is a huge reshuffle. So Tony Crossan ended up being education secretary, rather to everybody's surprise, and was in charge of this revolution. And he said famously, I quote this, by the way, uh, I'm going to make sure to destroy every fucking... Yes, that's school. right. Yeah. Uh, in, but in you say it's a, that shows 
the rural kind of venom, which seemed to go over and beyond just simple... It's extraordinary, isn't it, yes. that someone should hate good yes. schools. It's also a very interesting feature of this. Yeah. If you're coming up with a reform of any part of institutional Britain uh, at all, then surely what you do is you look and see what's good and you build mm. upon it. But the comprehensivization of secondary education in, in Britain involves, of necessity, the destruction of something like 1,200 undoubtedly good schools, in return for which you've got the creation of several hundred new comprehensive schools whose quality nobody could be sure of until they existed. And then when they found out that they weren't very good, we'd spent the next, what, 60 years pretending that they were good after all, rather than saying, whoops, we made a terrible mistake, yes. let's put this right. Mm. You, you also describe, uh, which I think is very, which is to an extent of what, what we're talking about, is that there was this kind of um, dislike of what grammar schools seemed to represent, not just in, the, in, the, in terms of, you know, the 11 plus, but just that they had a traditionalism about them. Oh, very um, much so. You know. uh, the, some of the opponents of the grammar schools were actually members of the Communist Party of Great Britain mm. and were de devoted to, to the egalitarian, utopian cause. And they saw grammar schools as, a, as a, not just a, a failed halfway mark, but they saw them as an obstacle to the utopia which they hoped to create. People like Brian Simon, who was one of the most intelligent articulate advocates of what they call common schools to begin with. And they, 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 they really, it really was one of those occasions where the, uh, the supposed best became the enemy of the good. They believed that the comprehensive schools would result in a kind of sunlit paradise of, of total equality mm -hmm. where all the classes mixed and the, the undoubted class divisions of this country were melted away, which didn't of course happen in reality. And that the existence of grammar schools was an obstacle to this wonderful utopia. Uh, so they wanted to get on with utopia and push, push it to one side. There were also people who believed that there was a, that one of the effects of grammar schools on the working class was that the people who, and there's some truth in this, the people who were lifted up by the grammar schools out of poor backgrounds, miners or weavers or whatever it was, uh, were detached from both their families, which is true in many cases, I think there was mm. some estrangement, would sometimes take place, mm. uh, but were also, as it were, detached from their class roots and in some mm. ways almost betraying them. Uh, there's, it's, there's very interesting passages in some of the left-wing writing about grammar schools by people who attended them and admitted they'd had a good deal out of them, uh, but still thought that actually they, um, they weren't a good idea. It's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, there's much more to this than education. In fact, there's very little education in it at all. There's never been any research that I know of that ever showed that comprehensive education was better educationally for any purpose than selective schools. Mm. So it's interesting, uh, with, in my case, uh, you know, the, the way this showed itself straight away was that they changed the name because Rome, Rome Grammar School for Boys, I think that's what it was called, yeah. long ago, became the John Roan School, that yeah. was considered to be somehow less elitist. These words were used oh, at yeah. the time. Yeah. And they, I think they got rid of the house system that we had and all, all of yeah, that. But then a lot of grammar schools in the early years, in, 
because uh, grammar schools began uh, a lot of compre comprehensives, I should say, a lot of comprehensives in the early years, because comprehensives began to come into being long before 1965 and the great uh, the great circular 1065. A lot of the original comprehensives were quite like grammar schools in appearance, honors boards, teachers in gowns, uh, rugby playing, and uh, very, uh, how shall I put it, um, old-fashioned, uh, almost sort of grey friars atmospheres in mm. the schools, and quite a lot of streaming as well. But very soon after that, the egalitarians said this isn't enough, and they began to they began to demand mixed ability teaching. And the end of these things, and th quite quickly, because of the, the nature of the schools, and the, a new head would come in, or a new education authority would, uh, a new party would take over the education authority, or whatever it might be. Comprehensives, which had begun as quite formal and disciplined, uh, became much less formal, much more mm -hmm. mixed ability, much more genuinely comprehensive. But of course, these tended to be concentrated in the poorer areas of cities. The mm -hmm. the uh, the schools which survived most uh, most with most similarity to the old grammar schools, of course, were the ones which were in the better parts of town, where where where, where people paid housing premiums to to live in expensive houses. And this was understood. If you read Circular Ten Sixty Five carefully, they knew when they did it. That this division was going to exist between the wealthy and the less wealthy areas of cities. Yes, yes. So in fact we've, throughout a period of decades, we've ended up now with a far worse situation, haven't we? Uh, basically it is down now to money, isn't it? Very much so. I know there must be exceptions of some kind, but in general it, at, at, on National Offer Day each March, uh, your educational fate is decided largely by where your parents yeah. live. Uh, there are also the issues of, of religion. I mean, it, it, it is alleged, and no one can prove it, of course, that quite large numbers of parents feign religious faith to get their children into better schools. Yeah. And undoubtedly, a, a lot of the religious schools are better for reasons which are quite complicated. But the, the, there is that too. But fundamentally, National Offer Day is a huge and bitter permanent selection by wealth. Unlike the old selection by ability, uh, there's, there's no real appeal against that. Unless your parents win the lottery, they're going to stay in the income bracket they were in when you first went to school. Yeah. So it will remain. I, there wasn't enough switching between schools under the old academically selected system, but there was quite a lot. And it doesn't really happen now because people still continue to live in the same area. And the Sutton yes. Trust and Teach First have both done surveys which show clearly that the better comprehensive schools in the country are heavily socially selected towards the well-off. It's an inevitable result. No one really tries to deny it. Yes. Actually, in, in the, uh, one of the uh, appendices of the book, you do list high-achieving people uh, who went to grammar school. Yes, I do, yeah. And, I mean, it, quite extraordinary. All areas, of, all areas of life. I have no data, unlike that, um, I have no data really to to uh, back this up, but it's just that my, my impression is that in the 60s and 70s, um, when I was growing up and at school, there was a, a greater feeling that you could do more than maybe you can now. Well, th this was Anthony Sampson in his the, the great liberal journalist in his books, The Anatomy of Britain, his series, mm. was, was very taken with this. His passages on this in the books as they, as, as they go on from the first to I think fourth. Uh, are more and more astonished by the way the grammar schools are conquering Oxford and Cambridge and the professions 
and the armed services. And you know that people you look around you now. Admiral Lord West of Spithead is a grammar school boy. Mm -hmm. uh, so is Alan, Alan Bennett, uh, the, 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 the noted playwright. And, uh, and, and so was Alan Rickman, the great Shakespearean actor, whose father was, a, as far as I know, a house painter. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these all went to good selective state schools and rose to the very top. Mm -hmm. And quite rightly, it wasn't what the ground schools were created for, but it is in fact what they did. And it's one of the reasons why I, I, my colleague Kiba Roy went through the, uh, through the relevant editions of Who's Who and found them all. Because uh, I thought it was people always saying it, but I thought it would be really nice to have a list of the mm -hmm. people who actually mm -hmm. made it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating, scientists, lawyers, a uh, lot of lawyers and quite a lot of, of, of armed service people as well. It's quite, it's quite important there. Uh, but people uh, from any area of life, the, the many, many people, extremely high achievement, started it in a, in a state selective grammar school in the 1940s or 1950s. It's, it's quite tear-jerking to read. Actually, uh, I suppose that the, the media, which was growing and booming, uh, was a, a great place for many of these people. I mean, you, you talk about Joan Bakewell in it. I mean, yes, I um, used to Joan work. Joan Bakewell is another yes. fantastic example. Yes, uh, you know, who, who now, who's now Baroness Bakewell and a, a great, you know, a, a, a great person in the country and a, and, a, and an important one. She, she without her, her, her early years of grammar school, none of this would have happened. Mm. And very interesting passage, which I recommend to people about the contrast between what happened to her and what happened to her sister, and her own mm. slightly differing accounts of this, uh, which which have something to say about the constant mantra that the division between grammar school and secondary modern was was terribly cruel and unfair. I'm not sure the story of her and her sister actually bears that out. As it's, it is, uh, she was inconsistent, wasn't you? Uh, she yeah. was, yes. Yeah. I think. I, in, it, but it, so I, I, we couldn't. We can't really go through it all here. Mm. But it's a passage in the book. Mm. I do recommend to people who think that it's that simple. Do you think actually, and this is related to to, the, to that actually? Um, I remember that my parents, you know, were extremely. Um, I suppose you would call them aspirational working class. Uh, in the sense, they thought education was important and they thought history was important and, and all of that. And I wonder whether the kids who did well at grammar school were from that my kind of background. I mean, in other words, there were books around, just not libraries, you know? Just not no, libraries. Of course. No one's ever really done the work on it. That's mm. the trouble. Uh, you, you simply can't be sure. I mm. think quite a lot probably weren't. But they just passed the exam and they went to the school and they, and, and they were not left to struggle as they would have been in a modern comprehensive. And so they did well in things. In those days, of course, it, university was an extraordinarily rare destination. Mm. Uh, and I'm not absolutely convinced that was a very bad thing. Yeah. It wasn't, that you couldn't judge the outcome of grammar school education on whether people went to university or not. They went into professions without having to do so. Mm. Uh, and, and made a great impact on life. And they, they, they left school and left education earlier than people would now because in many cases they had family pressures to go out and earn. But I, I don't know. I simply don't know. It wasn't, the thing was, if, if the grammar schools had had that purpose, uh, then they would have had to do things like introduce uh, maintenance grants so that this problem of the child who, uh, from, from a poor home who was bright but whose parents wanted him to go out to work would have been able to say, well, no, I don't need to because I'm eligible for a grant. But none of that was done. All the things which happened, thanks to grammar schools, happened in the absence 
of the sort of social measures you would take if you were really trying to, uh, trying yes. to avoid that. Yes. Do you think that, we started by talking about the Tory party, uh, do you think that the idea of selective education on merit uh, is absolutely dead now? I mean, do you see it as the, in the same way as you would talk about the, the death of conservatism? Is there, because occasionally it comes up, doesn't it? In the past 10 years, there was some half-hearted attempt to reintroduce uh, grammar schools by the back door somehow. Right? Well, the, these, these are always half-hearted, and the reason yeah. is the Conservative Party never really believed in, yeah. the, in the state selective schools anyway. Uh, it never really, it, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't defend them against attack. In local government, in many cases, where a lot of the, the comprehensives which originally sprang up, sprang up not out of some utopian desire, but because it was cheaper on a big new housing state to build one school than to build two. Mm. And so they went comprehensive. And many of the authorities which did this were, were, were certainly ostensibly conservative. But it wasn't ideological. The, the Conservative Party never had, even when people like David Eccles were in charge of education, uh, an, an ideological or political commitment to selective state education, and most conservative politicians at that time, I'm sure, sent their children to private fee-charging mm -hmm. schools. It wasn't really an experience they had or understood. And when they came under attack, they didn't defend them. And they, they, they realized that the, the idea of bringing back some grammar schools plays well to a certain part of their voting base. So from time to time, they come up with it. Actually, David Cameron was probably more honest over that than, than he needed to be when Graham Brady and others opposed him. He, he said, well, no, we can't go on promising this one. We're not going to do it. And we and people will, will think we're ridiculous. And there's some truth in that. Mm. The conservative repeated promises that they'll bring back grammar schools have always turned out to be false, and they never take place. I, yes. I would love it if, if I thought it were possible to restore the grammar schools. When I originally set out on the book, I thought that I could write it as a manifesto for that program. But the more I read about it, and the more I researched, the more sure I became that it would be impossible to do. There's no political will in this country mm. for it. Unlike, interestingly, there was very strong political will in the, in the late 1980s and early 1990s when East Germany collapsed, and it was comprehensive, East Germany. And parents in East Germany wanted to have the same grammar schools as West Germany had, and they demanded them and got them. Uh, but only countries which have really experienced full-on egalitarianism uh, have people in them who realize how important it is mm. not to have it. Mm. And I don't think there's any of that kind of political force here. Mm. And also, where would you find the teachers? Uh, the, yeah. the quality of education which grammar schools provided was immensely higher than mm. anything we can now conceive of. When I was growing up, in my early teens, it was. I heard it. I, my, my father worked at a school, and when I heard a lot of teachers' conversations, uh, and you heard it said over and over again that a set of English A levels was equivalent to an American college degree. Yeah. And at that time, mm. there was a thing called the brain drain, where Americans mm. were constantly recruiting, mm. particularly scientists, uh, from British schools and universities to go and work over there for mm. vast salaries, far more than they get here. And people went in large numbers. It was a social phenomenon, the brain drain. And none of these things are heard of anymore. America doesn't, doesn't poach our schools or our universities in, in that way anymore. And our A-levels are not remotely worth an American college degree. Yeah. It's the, the plunge in the standards of our education mm. since that here is measurable largely by the huge inflation 
in, in mm. first of all in O levels, which eventually had to be destroyed and replaced by the GCSE, and then with A levels, which bear no relation to the A levels of my school years, and of course university degrees themselves, where I think there's huge numbers of people now getting first class degrees, which were once reserved for a tiny minority. And so it's it's like telling people and people say, well, they've all got these fantastic qualifications, but then again, people in Zimbabwe were all billionaires, but. It, they could buy a loaf of bread with a billion mm. with, with a billion mm. Zimbabwe dollars. So what did it matter? Mm. And these these educational qualifications they are Zimbabwe dollars. You actually say or suggest in the book that I think the mid sixties I think uh, the destruction uh, the, the, the the at least the beginning of the destruction of grammar schools was either preliminary act or the very first, most important act of cultural revolution. I now believe so, yes. I think it made it, it made the whole thing possible. There was this preliminary cultural revolution under the Wilson government, run largely by Roy Jenkins, uh, in, in declawing the criminal justice system, particularly, and destroying the police as they then were. Uh, and in, in undermining the existence of the married family by making divorce uh, how shall I put it, rather easier than it's been before, uh, those two particular ones come to mind. Uh, but those didn't bear fruit as cultural revolutionary actions for some time afterwards. Mm. And what made it possible for them to do so, and made it almost impossible for them to be reversed, I think, is that in the, in the period of the 60s, the educational system ceased to produce in large numbers skeptical thoroughly educated people who could stand up against the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the great losses. If you don't have an educational elite, you don't anymore have, where do your town DLs come from? The people who are prepared to say, no, this is a mistake. Mm. People who know enough to know that things are a mistake, as we've just seen in the COVID panic, there simply isn't uh, enough weight of numbers in our governing class of people willing to say no to yes. the crowd. Yes. And I think that the destruction of the grammar schools made that possible. I think they, what they produced is people who were capable of saying no to a crowd. Well, as I said, Peter, I mean, it was very, um, it was very close to my heart to, to read it. Uh, it Could I one small thing that you haven't touched on, which is, is actually quite big for me, because yes. I wasn't really aware of it till I, till I wrote the book. The question to secondary moderns, and uh, I'd known that they were better than had been said, that towards the end they were getting quite a lot of people, fairly good exam results, and sometimes getting people into university. But I discovered during this a, a tremendous book written by Michael Dick Stroud called The Secondary Mod. He, he attended a secondary modern and ended up doing physics at the University of Sussex, uh, and has had a very successful career. And he, the, the research that he's done is a huge corrective to all the, the, the general uh, propaganda of the, of the grammar school opponents as well. If you have the grammar schools back, you have to have the secondary moderns, and that would be terrible. It's my view after studying Mr. Stroud's book that I think a large number of the secondary moderns were a good deal better than a large number of the existing comprehensives uh, on any terms. And yeah. that the idea that uh, that they were terrible schools and a national shame simply doesn't stand up to examination. They were handicapped in their opening years because they weren't even allowed to set their people's public examinations, can you imagine? But when that restriction was lifted, in fact, some, some, some of the schools forced their way through it, when, when that came to an end, they began to perform pretty well. 
And I don't think that the, the old mantra of the, of the comprehensive people that, that uh, the secondary models were a disaster stands up to examination at all. And I, as, as well as my own book, I hugely recommend Mr. Stroud's, which I relied on heavily in my called? chapters. Yeah. It's just called The Secondary Mod. Mm. It's available on, as, as, a, as, a, as an e-book or, on, mm. um, or, 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 or from Amazon as a, um, directly. Uh, but it's not, so he's not an academic, has no academic standing, but I just thought it's a fantastic, uh, powerful piece of research. And many, many more people should know about it and read it. Well, thank you for that recommendation. And uh, of course, your own book, uh, which is uh, Revolution Betrayed, How Egalitarians Wrecked the British Education System. Um, thank you very much, Peter, for ta talking about it. Um, if you'd stay there, we're going to have a few questions sure. for our exclusive members for you. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, that's it for this week. Um, we shall see you next time on So What You're Saying Is. Thank you. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.